0: Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Exodus chapter 20. I think a fair argument could be made that this chapter has had a greater influence on human society than any other chapter in the Old Testament. Ask yourself a simple question. Is there a country in the world where you would like to live that has never at any point been exposed to and transformed by the moral code of the Bible? I can't think of one. This chapter illuminates the path of worship, love, and wisdom. Now, I know that some Christians have a bit of a bad attitude toward the law, but that ought not to be. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy one eight. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, closed quote. So, if you use the law lawfully, correctly, not as a way of salvation, but as a way of loving one another and living rightly and reverently before God, then the law is an inestimable blessing to humankind. In every nation where this law is known and respected— Human beings thrive and flourish. J. Alec Montier says it perfectly. He says, the law of God reflects the character of God. It is the likeness of God expressed in precepts and obedience to the law of the Lord triggers in us the image of God, which is our real nature. In other words, we live the truly human life when we obey the Lord's law, closed quote. We live the truly human life when we obey the Lord's law. Thus, we are not surprised that the Ten Commandments have historically occupied a central position in Christian education and catechism. Of the 107 questions in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, for example, 42 of them have to do with the Ten Commandments. For much of church history, you educated a Christian child by teaching them the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and the Ten Commandments. It would be impossible to overestimate the importance of the chapter that we're about to read. And so, of course, it needs to be said that we are not going to do it justice in the 15 to 20 minutes that we're afforded in this format. This is an introduction only. This is merely to whet your appetite. My goal is to equip you and to entice you to come back to this chapter again and again and again. There is a lifetime of wise and loving instruction in this chapter for anyone who has ears to hear. Thanks be to God. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This preamble to the Ten Commandments is immensely important. Imagine how different biblical religion would feel if God had said to Moses the first time he visited Sinai, here are ten laws. If you can obey them for five years, I will set you free from Egypt. But thanks be to God, that isn't what the Bible says. The The first time Moses was at Sinai, God didn't say anything about the law. The people at that time were under the dominion of Pharaoh. Had God said, obey me and then I will set you free, biblical religion would be a religion of salvation by works. It would be about people earning their salvation and deserving the rescuing grace of God. But this order here that we see in the text makes it clear that biblical religion is a religion of grace. Kevin DeYoung, as always, puts the matter plainly and memorably. He says, the Ten Commandments are not instructions on how to get out of Egypt. They are rules for a free people to stay free. Closed quote. That's exactly right. The law was given to people that God had already set free. He saved them. And then he spoke to them about how to live as a redeemed and precious people. Thanks be to God. We begin to hear these Ten Commandments, or Ten Words, as they are actually called in Hebrew, in verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, most Protestants have understood verses 3 to 6 as giving us two commandments, whereas Roman Catholics understand these verses as giving only one commandment. They then break the 10th commandment up into two in order to stay at the number 10. But clearly, it would seem that we have two commandments here. The first commandment is to worship God exclusively. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, we've already dealt with the confusion that can result from the use of that term, gods. The Bible does not teach polytheism, so it would probably be better to render that word as heavenly beings. The Bible recognizes all manner of heavenly beings, fallen and unfallen, The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 20, that the so-called gods of the nations are really just demons in disguise. So Old Testament and New, the existence of heavenly beings is acknowledged, but none of those heavenly beings is in the same category as God. God is unique in his essence, unique in his character, unique in his authority, and unique in his claims. A rightly ordered human life begins with rightly recognizing the singular nature of God at the very center of one's allegiance and affection. That's the first commandment. It is about worshiping and obeying the one true God. The second commandment is a proscription of idolatry. To proscribe something means to forbid it. If the first commandment is about worshiping the right God... The second commandment is about worshiping the right God the right way. It is about worshiping God the way he wants to be worshiped, as opposed to the way we want to worship him. And those two things are not always the same. We'll have opportunity to talk about idolatry at some length when we get to chapter 32. So for now, let me just say that the call in the Bible is to come and listen, not to come and look. No one sees God, but as we learn in the story, people can listen to God. God speaks, we don't see. Even when Moses asks to see in chapter 34, God hides him in a rock, covers his eyes, and speaks. So, worship, if it is truly biblical worship, will center around the word of God, the self-disclosure of God, and must not descend into crude visual representations which will inevitably end up saying more about our fantasies than about God's reality. Now, as I said, we'll talk more about idolatry when we get to chapter 32. The commandment against idolatry ends here with God saying that he will visit the iniquity of fathers unto children to the third and fourth generation while showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love him and keep his commandments. First of all, let's just notice the connection there between loving God and keeping his commandments, and between hating God and not keeping his commandments. That's important for us to see. In the Bible, to love God is to keep his commandments. Jesus himself said that in John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Obedience is the love language of God. Now, the idea of three to four generations versus a thousand or thousands is a typical Hebrew phrase where three to four means a few and a thousand is more like what we mean in English by a myriad. The idea is fairly straightforward. There will be natural consequences for disobedience, particularly for idolatry. Children generally do walk in the way of their parents. So your disobedience is likely to have a multi-generational impact. That is natural law, okay? That's going to happen. That's hardwired into this universe. But thanks be to God, it's a natural law that God limits in the case of sin, three to four generations only. Whereas in the case of obedience, he extends the natural law so that the consequence of obedience is greatly amplified. And the point here, friends, is actually quite encouraging. God has rigged the game in favor of obedience. The positive effect of your obedience will be greater and longer and more enduring than the negative impact of your disobedience in terms of the influence that it has over your children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. Thanks be to God. Verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. This is, of course, the third commandment, and it has to do primarily with the careful, reverent, and honest use of God's name. Now, some people wonder here whether or not this would forbid them from swearing oaths in court. Douglas Stewart is very helpful here. He says, The phrase, So help me God was designed not to be understood as an oath invoking the name of God, but a specialized type of prayer for assistance in telling the truth. The commandment against using God's name in vain need not be regarded as broken by such an oath in court. Closed quote. I think that's a useful clarification. Verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but... We'll have further opportunity to speak in depth about the Sabbath law as well, but let me say here that there is equal weight given in the wording of this commandment to issues of resting and making holy. The basic idea is that we should organize our time so as to prioritize a day of rest and worship. The commandment also says that we shouldn't grant ourselves this gift by offloading labor to someone else. It would be easy, of course, to have rest by getting your servants to do all your chores. But the commandment says that this day should be for everyone, rich and poor, family and sojourners. The whole society will benefit from a day of rest and worship. Now, if you've read the New Testaments, you know that Jesus bumped up against this Sabbath law, this commandment all the time, not in terms of how it's given here, but in terms of how it evolved within Judaism. So I'll plan an excursus episode to delve into this commandment a little deeper. But in its essence, this is a commandment to live a life that is about more than human labor. Remember, as Montier said, these commandments trigger the image of God in us. They remind us of who we are and who we were created to be. And brothers and sisters, we are not ants. We are not bees. We were made for more than labor. So the Sabbath day is a day to remember that. It's a day to remember God and to remember us. We meet the fifth commandment in verse 12. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Now, there's a great deal of discussion as to where this commandment fits into the overall structure of the Ten Commandments. Most scholars understand there to be two tables of the law, a group of laws relating to loving God and a group of laws relating to the love of neighbor. And I think that is generally true. In fact, in Hebrew, the Ten Commandments begin with the phrase, the Lord your God, and they end with the phrase, your neighbor. So that does seem to be the beginning and the end of it. However, the debate has to do with whether this commandment is about loving God or loving neighbor. So, do we have a table of four followed by a table of six, or do we have two tables of five? J. Alec Montier actually goes a different way altogether and sees a threefold division. He sees a table about God, a table about family, and a table about neighbors. And his application is hard to argue with. He says that the law is telling us that our first obligation is to God, then to family, then to neighbor. And I'm sure that's right. I still tend, however, to see two tables. And I think that this fifth commandment actually best fits in the first table. I see it as transitional. We learn to love God and we learn to love neighbor at home. So God gives to mom and dad some authority that we might learn submission and service in a context of love and trust. That's how I see it. But this is certainly not a fellowship issue. What is clear and beyond all dispute is, is that God's people have a responsibility to honor their parents. Now, that word means to respect, and it means to take care of. Caring for our aged parents pleases the Lord and reflects his character to a watching world. Verse 13, you shall not murder. Now, you'll notice that the commandments now become quite a bit shorter than the ones that came before. This commandment in Hebrew is actually just two words. You could translate this, never murder, and you wouldn't be far off. The specific word here does mean murder and not just kill, as it was once rendered in the old King James Version. Hebrew scholar Nahum Sarna explains here that the Hebrew word used applies only to illegal killing, and unlike other verbs for taking of life, is never used in the administration of justice or for killing in war. Also, It is never employed when the subject of the action is God or an angel. This command, therefore, cannot be used to justify either pacifism or the abolition of the death penalty, both of which would have to be argued on other grounds. Closed quote. The seventh commandment is given in verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. Adultery in that culture referred to sex with another man's wife. However, as we will talk about in the next episode, Hebrew law is paradigmatic as opposed to exhaustive, meaning that a principle is given, usually embedded in a very specific case, that is intended to be extrapolated logically so as to cover other related questions and concerns. This law prioritizes the marital covenant. And thus, when we get into the case law that follows the Ten Commandments, we're not surprised to see all manner of unlawful sex being proscribed. In the Bible, sex is only lawful and only beautiful when it takes place within the covenant union between one man and one woman. Verse 15, you shall not steal. Now, some Jewish commentators actually understood this primarily as a reference to kidnapping. Uh, but it is probably broader than that. It certainly includes that. It is likely correct to think of this as applying in general to the principle of private property. We love our neighbors. Human society flourishes when there is a proper respect for ownership. Martin Luther loved to flip all of these commandments inside out, and so he talked about how we love our neighbors by working hard at something that contributes to the common good. And I think that's true. Remember, as the Apostle Paul said in Romans 13.10, love is the fulfilling of the law. So law is a guide to loving. Luther is on the right track here. We want to use the law to help us understand how to love our neighbors. So young people, when you consider a career, try and choose one that allows you to add benefit and blessing to your fellow man. Don't be a taker, work hard so as to be a giver. That's the idea here. Verse 16 gives us the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. A just society depends upon an honest citizenry. Now again, people sometimes ask why the Bible doesn't just say here, never lie. Again though, this is how Hebrew law works. It is paradigmatic. It embeds a principle in a concrete situation, ideally one that connects intuitively to the rationale, as here. If we lie, we imperil the cause of justice. We undermine our own safety and security. A healthy, stable society requires a population of truth-tellers. Verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. To covet is to desire wrongly. Notice that. The Bible is concerned not just with our actions, but also with our thoughts. In fact, the first and last commandments deal in thought. The commandments cover what you think, what you say, and what you do. All those things matter to God. And there is a progression, too. Wrong thought leads to wrong speech and wrong action. So we need to care about those things, root and branch. We see that here. And we also see that, of course, in Jesus' teaching on the Ten Commandments in the Sermon on the Mount. Obedience begins in the heart. Verse 18. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off Now, you will recall that the people had been brought to the foot of the mountain so as to overhear this conversation between God and Moses. But now they're saying that this is too close. Moses needs to go further up because the people are terrified of the voice of God. Most commentators say here that this reaction is actually appropriate and was in some sense the point. God was testing them to see if they had a proper fear of God, and they do. They have it. And in fact, they'd like to have less of it, actually. But the point is that God wanted them to have it. He wanted them to have an appropriate fear of God. We'll need to come back to that one as well. But please note that there is a proper fear of God. We should be afraid of dishonoring God. We should be afraid of being thought by God as arrogant or rebellious or unloving people. We should be alarmed at the potential consequences to ourselves and to our family members should we disregard this life-giving instruction. That's a good fear of God. And that is not the only reason to obey the law, but it's not a wrong reason. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There are other reasons and there are higher motivations. But this is where it generally begins. Verse 22. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you, And bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to the altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Now, this feels to many people like a very odd transition, but revelation leads to response. The people are going to want to respond, and so God provides some direction. They are not to respond simply by imitating the modes of worship that were common in the surrounding culture. They were to worship according to the word of God. The rules that are being introduced here might be summarized under the heading, Keep it simple. The instructions appear designed to ward off the natural impulse of the people towards idolatry and indecency, issues which will reappear in the story of the golden calf. So simple and decent, sensuality and ostentatiousness are not permitted. And that makes sense, given all of what the Lord has revealed about himself in the speaking of his law. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find all those over the website at www.intotheword.ca. You can also connect with us on Facebook. I hope that you do. We have a growing community of Bible readers over there. We post daily encouragements, some user reflections, and also some conversation starters. It would be great to see you there. And I hope to see you again real soon, right here for another episode of Into the Word.